you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. It's good to be here in the house of God. Amen. Amen. Yes. And uh, as I woke up this morning, I always ask Google, what's the weather today? And uh, it determines what type of clothing I want to wear. I just want to pat myself. But we are getting into the season, isn't it? But we are coming out of a season, and I don't know if you know this or not. Last Sunday, we came to our final chapter in this amazing gospel. Now, I'm sad to see it's coming to an end because I've learned so much through these two years of study. Believe it or not, today this is the 85th message on the Gospel of John. Wow. And this is the penultimate message, meaning that the last one will be next Sunday, so don't miss it. We'll be looking at only three verses, as you heard, being read from the gospel according to John, chapter 21, and we are going to look at verses 15 and 17. This final scene in the John's gospel takes place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after the breakfast Jesus provided the seven disciples. Uh, I see the main purpose of this text as Jesus reaffirming Peter's calling following his denial. This narrative shows Peter's public restoration to his apostolic ministry. I believe that this is not the first time, the first encounter of Peter with the risen Lord. Jesus most likely appeared to Peter before he appeared to the group of disciples. You might wonder, Pastor, where do you get this from? If you look at the Lucan narrative, we're talking about the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. You remember that? And when they came back to see the disciples, this is what they said. They said, I'm sorry, I must have hit the wrong buttons here. They said, the Lord is risen indeed. And then they said, and has appeared to Simon. This is the two disciples coming to see the other disciples, the two disciples who have encountered Christ on the road to Emmaus. They are coming and tell the disciples, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And we also see this in, in Paul is confirming that in his epistle to the saints in Corinth. Paul writes about the appearances of the Lord in chapter 15, uh, in, in the first Corinthians chapter 15, and this is what he says. He says, and he was seen by who? Cephas. Cephas is Peter. And note, it says, then to the, to the 12. So when and where, I have no idea where this happened. I, but I believe that it was in this private encounter that the Lord dealt with Peter's denial and forgave him. How can I say that? 
How do I say that God's relationship or Peter's relationship with the Lord is restored? Because in our text last week, if you followed very carefully, we saw that Peter was eager to be with the Lord the moment he recognized the Lord standing on the shore. And you heard the text last, last week, it, is, it says that he put on his coat, stepped out of the boat, took a swim instead of a walk. He doesn't act like a man who feels guilty. And we all know that no thief will run to a policeman. So I think that this is because Peter's sins have already been dealt with. And Peter has already been restored to the fellowship with, the, with his Lord. But that was a private restoration. That was a private restoration of the apostles. But in today's text, we see Peter's public restoration. Everybody say the word public restoration. It's a public restoration to apostolic ministry in front of the other six disciples. Why a public restoration? Why should Jesus do that? Because Peter's sin was not done in a closed closet. Peter's sinful behavior was witnessed by the others. So in the presence of the same group, Peter must be restored. Church, there's a valuable lesson for all of us. There's a powerful lesson for all of us, especially the believers who backslides for whatever sin it can be. Yes, when we go with a contrite, repentant heart and ask the Lord to forgive us, he will certainly forgive us and cleanse us and make us new. Because we see that in John's epistle when he writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's between you and God. But when your sins are known in public and you are serving the Lord in public ministry, just coming right with God on your own would not qualify you for public ministry. You must be restored in public by the Lord. Yes, just like Peter was restored and summoned to public ministry in this text, the one who sinned, whose sin is known in public, must be restored publicly. That's a lesson for all of us. Church, another observation that you do here is that if you recall... Peter was called to apostleship after a miraculous catch of fish. And we saw that in Luke chapter 5. And today we are seeing that Peter is reinstalled in his apostle office after a miraculous catch of fish. In our text today, the focus is on Peter, the beloved disciple John, and Jesus. Before we dive in, by way of introduction, I want us the believers, to know our calling for sure. Peter, Paul writes this to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What does that mean? It means, church, that if you are a born-again believer, you are a new creation. Your past sins are forgiven. You are reconciled to God. And how did that happen? We see that in the next verse. It says in verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through whom? Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? The reconciliation was through Jesus Christ. And why? Because of his great love. God so loved the world. 
You get it? It's through the Lord Jesus Christ we are, rest we are restored. So what? So what? What are now called to be engaged, as you look at this passage of Scripture, in the ministry of reconciliation. This is applicable to every believer, every new creation. And who called us? It is God. You can see that. And let us read verse 20 very quickly. And it says in verse 20, now we are ambassadors for Christ. What do you take from this? We are given a new title. And what is the title? The ambassadors of Christ. So just listen. There is a responsibility bestowed on all believers. Every believer. If you are a believer, there's a responsibility because your new title is you as an ambassador for Christ. You are called to serve the Lord in the ministry of reconciliation as a result of his love. What should be your response? The two great commandments. Love the Lord. Why? Because he saved you. And love others. Why? Because he has called you. You love the Lord because he saved you. You love others because he called you. If you love God because of his love and grace toward us, and the outcome is that we will serve him by loving others. Church, this is the crux of today's message. This is today's message. In our text, the Lord Jesus drills home to Peter and to all of us the foundational motive for serving him. We serve him because we love him. We love him because he has graciously forgiven all of us. This is the foundational motive for serving him. So let me begin by asking a question to you. Do you love him? Do you love him? Close your eyes for a moment, please. And see if you really love him. Do you really love him? Thank you. But if your answer is yes, let me ask you the next question. How are you serving him? How are you serving him? So church, in our text today, we make two observations. The first one is the command that we see. The command is to love him. That's the command. And the second observation that we are making here is the calling. The calling is to serve him. It's a simple message, but it's a very powerful message. It's a very powerful message. They both go hand in hand. So let us look at the text right now. Let me explain the surrounding first. They're all at the sea of the show of the Sea of Galilee, a charcoal fire going, and a cooked fish and bread, bread for breakfast. Seven of the disciples are sitting at the charcoal fire, and we have Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, and we have two other disciples whose names are not given uh, by John. This is a picture of fellowship in a it is a public setting. Now the Lord singles out Peter. And look at verse 15, what the Lord is telling him. Jesus calls Peter. How does he call him? Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. You know, church, when Peter was first introduced to Jesus, he addressed Peter 
as Simon, son of Jonah. I want you to come along with me very carefully. At the very first encounter, Jesus told Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. That was Peter's name before he met the Lord. Then the Lord gave him another name. I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, you used to be Simon. Now you are Petros or Peter, which means rock. The Hebrew meaning of the name Simon is to hear, is to listen. But the Greek name means flat-nosed. Flat-nosed. Now, it is actually, it's a name of weakness. It's a name of weakness. So notice, church, in this encounter, even though Peter is now called as Peter, Simon, the son of John, is called Peter, the Lord did not call him Peter. The Lord looked at him, he called him Simon. It is a reminder how the rock crumbled around the charcoal fire when that servant girl asked him, if he was one of Jesus' disciples. What a way to address Peter there. How do you think? Peter, just bear with me one minute. And Anthony, can you switch this off, son, please? Keep it with you. It's too high tech for me. Bear with me. So what a way to address Peter. How do you think Peter felt at that time? Simon... Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than this? You know, as I was preparing this message, I asked myself, how would I feel if the Lord is to ask me in the presence of the congregation, Ronald, do you love me? Wow. It's powerful. Let me tell you this, church. I call my children, Ian and Shauna, as Sunny and Sandy from the time they were born. The same with even the youth and the young adults of this church. They're all like my children. That sometimes people who don't know me, they get confused. I call the boys sons. I call the girls angels. These are names I conferred on them. And I only, I call them by these names because of a deep love relationship I have with all these children. But come along with me. If I look at my daughter this morning and say, Shauna Jaisalan, we need to talk. At once she'll sense the distance in our relationship. The intimacy is broken. We see the same thing here with Jesus calling Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus right away asked the question to Peter, see how he phrased the question. Do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than this? So he asked the question, what does this mean? There can be three possibilities. Jesus will be looking at Simon and saying, do you love me or you doubt love these disciples? Who do you love most? That's the first possibility. The second possibility is because they're all fishing right now. Do you love me or you, do you love this fishing business of yours? Or the third possibility is that you, your love for me 
Is it greater than the love these disciples have for me? And I believe it's the third one. That's what Jesus meant here. Why do I say that? Remember what Peter had previously claimed about this loyalty and love. Here are some of his claims when he was with Jesus. And he said this. He said, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, Jesus, I love you more than all these fellows who are coming with you. And then another, another phrase here, Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Wow. I am sure the Lord remembers this proclamation. Peter, remember what you told me. Remember what you told me. What was Peter telling Jesus then? I love you more than all these disciples. Peter had claimed a higher level of devotion than the rest of the disciples. So Jesus is simply asking him to re-evaluate his boastful claim. Something like this, Peter, do you still think that you love me more than these disciples do? That's the question Peter is asking. Listen, church, there is a lesson for all of us here. I want each one of you believers, it's a message to the believers, to think of your first encounter with Christ. I'm sure that all of us had accord with Peter and said, Lord, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Or you would have said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. We do make public confession of our Lord Jesus Christ and remember we will forget, but our Lord will not. He will remember it. But with time, as His blessings keep coming on us, and our lives get more comfortable, our priorities change. Our love for the Lord begins to diminish. What used to be all about Jesus, now it's about our career, about our home, about our kids, about our vacations, about our friends. Now our priority changes. We have little time for the Lord. We forget that it is the Lord who gave all these blessings. If the Lord asked the same question to you and me, how painful it would be. So Jesus is simply asking us to re-evaluate our boastful claim. Something like, my child, do you love me more than this? You know, church, I want to pause and tell you something here. There are people in my life as a pastor I have encountered, when they came to know the Lord, they are on fire for the Lord. They will say, Pastor, I want to be baptized. I want to proclaim the name of the Lord. And you hear that and you, and you see the passion and I'm looking at it purely from the worldly point of view. And remember, I may forget those things, but the Lord will not. And with time, you can see the love for the Lord diminishes. Why? You can't see the passion that they proclaimed at one time in them anymore. There is no desire for the word of God. There is no desire for corporate worship. There is no desire for prayers. And the Lord is asking you, my child, do you still love me more than this? 
Church, personally speaking, every time I feel tired and discouraged and helpless in the ministry, my coping mechanism, I force myself to bring to memory the commitment I made when I was summoned to the ministry. You know, David prayed, Lord, I want to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. And I prayed on the day I was ordained, Lord, help me to be the doormat in the house of God. And the Lord took it very seriously. When I remind myself about it, at times of frustrations, I am humbled and I am rejuvenated. So I keep on keeping on. For I dread the day that the Lord would ask, Ronald, do you love me more than this? Loving Jesus from the heart is the main things to focus on in your relationship with him. Jesus' repeated question to Peter hits each one of us, church. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Not once. Three times. Let me ask you, church. Do you love him? Do you love him? It reminds me of the Lord's rebuke to the church in Ephesus. And this is my greatest fear for us, for this church body and myself. Hear me out. We see this in the book of Revelation. The Lord is looking at the church in Ephesus and he's saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This church was doing well in many areas. They were working hard for the Lord. They were holding to sound doctrine. They were putting false teachers out of the church. They were boasting, Lord, look how we are serving you. But the Lord said to them, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Wow. Isn't it painful, church? Isn't it painful? Sound doctrine alone is hollow if it does not rest on genuine love for Jesus. The Ephesians were persevering and enduring hardship for Jesus' sake, which is commendable only if it is done out of love for Jesus. I'm sure the Ephesians probably could have added, but Lord, we have faithful in church attendance and and we celebrate communion often, and we give generously for your cause, and we do VBS, and we do the missions, and we do the north of 60, and the discipleship, and the youth, and the young adults, and the men's and women's, and the list can go on and on and on. And Jesus said to them, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. One theologian put it this way, and it's applicable to pastors, and I, would, I want you to hear this out. He paraphrased the first Corinthians chapter 13. This is what he says. You may be the world's most eloquent speaker, but if you don't love Jesus, you are just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You may have impressive spiritual gifts and great theological knowledge and faith that can remove mountains, 
But if you don't love Jesus, it's all worth nothing. You may give away all your possessions and even suffer martyrdom. But if you do it without love for Jesus, it profits you nothing. Love for Jesus is the essential motive for all you do for him. So you ask, Pastor, enough of this guilt trip. Tell us, how do I develop and maintain genuine love for Jesus from the heart? You know, church, this message is for the believers. And firstly, loving Jesus required that we be restored when you have sinned against him. You know, when you look at the scenario here, the Peter denied Jesus by a charcoal fire. The Lord restores Peter to ministry by a charcoal fire. Before others, three times Peter had denied Jesus. So before others, three times, Jesus asked Peter to confess his love for him. Peter had boasted he was a notch above the other disciples in his commandment to the, commitment to the Lord. But now he's humbled. He's totally humbled. Now see how Peter responds to Jesus. He doesn't say as he did before, yes, Lord, I love you more than this. That's not what he's saying. Look at what he's saying now. He changed his verbiage now. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Looking back on your sin where you have failed is absolutely necessary for every believer. Every one of you. And it will certainly humbles you and help you in your restoration. Church, although the Lord knew what was going on in Peter's life, that his, and he knew that his questions would cause Peter to be grieved, the Lord also knew that grieving over sins is a necessary part of being restored for those sins to a place of useful service for him. That's why we see in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. No one can properly serve the Lord who shrugs off sin as no big deal. Let me repeat that statement. No one can properly serve the Lord who shrugs off sin as no big deal. So where there is genuine love for God, you'll have short accounts with God and making reconciliation a priority. Same with your family, same with your spouse, same with your children. You know, when my kids were growing up, one thing I can truly say in the presence of God, they always had short accounts of their failures and sins with me. There is nothing I did not know as a father. They were not perfect at all in any stretch of imagination, but they were quick to admit and seek that forgiveness from me. That was indeed an indication that they loved me deeply. That they loved me deeply. Church as believers, when we sin, and we will, we need to confess it to the Lord and feel the grief that our sin causes us and the Lord. When we do that, the Lord will restore us. Note this, but the Lord does not restore us just because we can enjoy our relationship with Him. Although that is necessary, the result of our love for Jesus 
is that we will serve him. That's the second lesson that we are looking at in this passage of scripture, that we will serve him. That's the calling, to serve him. So the second lesson is if you love Jesus, serve him by feeding his sheep. Look at verse 15 again. I want to draw your attention to one other observation here, please. Every word in the scripture tells you something. It's, I would encourage those who are curious, not just limit to the English version of the Bibles that you have. Please go and understand the Greek meaning of those words. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Isn't it? Do you love me? In essence, the word love here is actually the word agapayo. Do you agapayo me? That's what the Lord is asking here. In Greek, which is a self-sacrificing spiritual love, the kind of love God has for humanity, the kind of love Jesus commanded us to have for each other. Look at how Peter responds Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word that Peter used in this setting is the word phileo. Phileo. He is not using the word agapayo, which is a kind of brotherly love, Peter is saying here, an affectionate love, a friendship love. Peter just could not say, yes, you know, you, God, I agapaye you. He couldn't say that. Because of his recent betrayal that has, that has given him a far more realistic understanding of his own sinful nature. Peter is cautious of making grand declaration of love as he did in the past. It sounds like Peter had reached a point where he recognized the weaknesses of his own character. So was being real before God. He said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. What is Peter appealing to here? Divine knowledge. You know my heart. You know how much I love you. I can fool everybody around here. But God, you know how much I love you. I cannot fool you like I did before. I know my weaknesses more than that you do. So Peter is saying, I do love you. I fear you. Jesus, you are God. You know that I flavor you. So what did Jesus do at this time? An important lesson for us, church. Jesus does not respond here to Peter and saying, that's not good enough for me. You have to abide me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus accepts his declaration and Jesus commissions him. Because Jesus knows our weaknesses. Jesus knows that we will fail. But he needed that confession from your heart, acknowledging your weaknesses, and to say, God, I flay you. I love you. I love you. So Jesus summons Peter to the apostolic ministry. But notice this, church, how Jesus addresses to whom Peter should minister. Look at this. Verse 15, read with me. Jesus says what? Feed my lambs. Verse 16, Jesus says what? Tend my sheep. Jesus, verse 17, Jesus says what? Feed my 
shape. If your first time you're looking at it, the question you would ask comes to your mind is that, Jesus, why didn't you say, feed my lambs all three times? If you ask him three times, do you love me? Why can't you say, feed my lamp all three times? Why did you say, tend my sheep? Let's examine this. The three responses of Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus says, feed my lambs. The Greek word for feed is the present tense denoting a continual action of feeding and caring for animals. Jesus is calling Peter to feed his lambs. Now, who are the lambs? Who are the sheep? That's the question we need to ask. Who is Jesus referring to here? We go to the Psalms, and it's very clear in the Psalms 95. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the who? Sheep of his hand. Who are we? You and I, the believers. So we are the sheep. He, when he says, feed the lambs, tend the sheep, feed the sheep, he's referring to the people, the believers. The believers are referred to the sheep throughout the scriptures. In verse 15, Jesus refers to his people as lambs. Did you notice that? Feed my lambs. By this, Jesus is emphasizing their nature as immature and vulnerable. Very immature and vulnerable believers. New believers who are in need of nourishment and care. Feed them. Take care of them. In the second time when Jesus uses the word, tend my sheep. The word means not only feeding, but also ruling over them. Ruling over them. Tending the sheep is a supervisory capacity. This expresses the full scope of pastoral oversight, both in Peter's future and all those who would follow him in pastoral ministry. Tend my sheep. Later on, we see this in the apostolic instructions to the elders of the churches in, in Asia Minor. Peter writes this. He repeats the same Greek word when he wrote his first pastoral letter. Look at this passage to the elders of the churches in Asia Minor. He says, shepherd, the same word as tend. The flock of God. Again, you see the people referred as sheep which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willing, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, talking about the oversight that you're going to give as a pastor. It's a heavy calling, church, in leadership ministry. Now come to verse 17. He's going back and using the same term, feed the sheep. Jesus did not say, tend my lambs this time. Instead, he says, feed my sheep. So here Jesus combines the different Greek words to make clear the job of a shepherd of the flock of God. They are to tend, care for, and provide spiritual food for God's people for the, from the youngest lambs to the full-grown sheep. In continual action to nourish and care for their souls, bringing them into the fullness of spiritual maturity. The totality of the task set before Peter and all the shepherds and those in ministry leads is made clear by Jesus' threefold command and the words Jesus chose here. So what is the food he's talking about? Feed my lamb. The food is the word of God. 
is the word of God. How do I know that? We see that in the scriptures. We don't have time to go through all that, but there are many references. I picked up just a few to show you. Peter, in his first epistle, he writes this, that Christians have to desire the pure spiritual milk. That is a food of what? The word. So when he refers to the word feed, the food is the, is, is the word of God. And in the Old Testament, we also see describing his word as food for his people. Look at this, who live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. And you see this being repeated by the Lord Jesus when? When he was tempted. Remember his encounter with the devil? He brought it back again. So what are we learning? The importance of the word of God as food for our souls cannot be overemphasized, church. So pastoral ministry should be primarily one of pastors feeding their people the word of God. That is what we are called to do. Only then pastors can declare, as Peter did, their love for the Lord, Jesus Christ. There is one other important factor to be considered in this. In all three times, is, a, is, a, is actually a very, I don't want to use it cruel, but it's a revelation to all of us who are in leadership. It doesn't matter to be a pastor. Even in ministry leaders, look at this. He uses the term here, feed what? My lambs. Second time, what does he say? Tend what? My sheep. Third time. Feed my sheep. So what are we learning here? The sheep lambs don't belong to any pastor, but to the Lord. Wow. That's a powerful revelation. And since they belong to the Lord who brought them with his own, who bought them with his own blood, pastors should be diligent to care for each one and love each one because each one is precious to Jesus. The sheep did not become pastors, Peter's flock here. They remained Jesus' sheep. But Peter was called to take care of those sheep for Jesus. He was only a steward. He was to become an under-shepherd, caring for the flock of Jesus, the chief shepherd. So, and that commission given to Peter 2,000 years ago was also given to others in Scripture and continues today. And the word we translate as pastor comes from the Greek word for shepherd. It always bothers me, based on this conviction, when I see Christians, brothers and sisters, even those of you who are seated here, maybe despise and put down other Christians. Some of the sheep, believe me, they can be obnoxious. They can be intolerable. They can be self-centered. They can be stubborn. They can be difficult to be around. I don't want to look at anybody. But listen, church. If Jesus loved them enough to die for them, then we all have to love them because they are his sheep. 
So church, no one believer should ever feel unloved. You should say amen to that. Not a single believer must feel unloved. If anyone feels unloved within the body of Christ, we have failed as a church body. And I take no apology for that statement. If any one of you here in this sanctuary feel unloved, we have failed as a church. I want you to turn to the person seated next to you and say, you are his sheep. Can you do that now? One more thing, you are going to say, you are so precious to the Lord. And the third statement I want you to make, you are so precious to me. And I mean it from my heart. Good. Very good. I know that you are thinking, thank God that's pastor's job, not mine. I'm not called to be a pastor, but hold it, church. Now you may say, pastor, shepherding the sheep is primarily the job of the elders. Church, Jesus wants to use every believer to help feed and shepherd his sheep because elders cannot do it alone. Shepherding the sheep, the Lord's flock, is the responsibility of every maturing member of the church. Older believers should shepherd those who are younger in the Lord. Husbands and fathers must shepherd their families and feed them from God's word. Mothers should teach their children the ways of the Lord. If you are more mature than another believer, then you have something to contribute to him or her. You can teach the new believers how to feed them from the from feed themselves from God's word. You can warn them of spiritual dangers that they may not be alert to. Even if both are at the same place of spirituality, you can help each other grow in following Christ. That is what our discipleship program is doing on Sunday mornings. It is sad when you don't come and join that program. And tell me, church, in the name of the Lord, I'm telling you, it's not a guilt trip at all. It's not a guilt trip at all. I grieve when I don't see children in the youth programs. I grieve when I don't see Sunday school children in the Sunday school program. I grieve when men don't show up for the men's group. I grieve when women don't show up for the women's study. Why? Trust me, I don't gain anything out of that. But I don't want to be the church, like the church in Ephesus, for the Lord to come and say, you have lost your first love. What is stopping you? I don't know. You know it. Let me show you how every one of us should be involved in that as I close this message. After the Lord delivered the man possessed with demons from the country of Gadarenes, opposite Galilee. We see that in the book of Luke chapter 8. The man was so excited that he was delivered. He told the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to come along with you. In other words, I want to be a disciple. Even though he was a brand new believer, this is what Jesus said. Look at the passage of scripture here. Luke chapter 8, 39. He says, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And then Luke adds this. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So if you love Jesus because he has changed your life, 
you have something to contribute to others. Every one of you. We see the same with the Samaritan woman who met Jesus at the well. There were three strikes against this woman. She was a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she had five husbands, and the one she was with was not her husband. I don't know how she managed with all six husbands. Three strikes. But yet when the encounter came, she came to that personal realization, understanding who God was, and she went about as the evangelist, evangelizing in the city of Samaria. And this is the result of that. Look at this, the outcome of her ministry. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him, Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified. What excuse do you have for not serving the Lord? Church, in conclusion, what do we learn from this? There are two commands from the Lord. Firstly, you are commanded to love him, to love him. He is asking every believer, do you love me more than this? Or is your job, your wealth, your spouse, your children, your friends, your vacation, is that coming in between you and God? You know what, church? It takes two minutes, not even two mittens, as my grandson used to say, for the Lord to remove that from you, all the blessings. Is it your health? It takes not even a second for the Lord to take it away from you. Then you become what? Dependent on God. Every believer is commanded to love him. Where there is genuine love, as I said, you'll have short accounts with God and making uh, reconciliation a priority. So for your love to be authentic, you should be in right relationship with the Lord. In other words, you must be restored not only privately but publicly. That's the first command that we see. And the second command that we see is you are called to serve. You are called to serve. Your love for Jesus has to be the foundation for your service to his sheep. Otherwise, you'll get hurt and, and, and disgusted and you'll quit serving. Love for Jesus is what keeps you going when the sheep are irritable and stubborn and disagreeable. You should love the sheep because Jesus loves them and gave his life for them. So Jesus is asking you and I today, this morning, do you love me? If your answer is yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He replies, tend my lambs. I must tell you honestly, my wife and I serve because we love the Lord, because we want to please him. I'm not serving the sheep for what, I, what they can give me. Church love for Jesus who first loved me, has kept me serving his flock, even though every week I feel overwhelmed by my inadequacy for the task. You get physically, you get weak as you age. Emotionally, you get drained. But I can say this from my heart. At times of exhaustion and fatigue in the ministry, and there were many moments like that. I only remind myself, and even if I don't, my wife will remind me, do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? If so, serve him.
wholeheartedly. If so, serve him wholeheartedly. Yes, not everyone is called to be a pastor. But Jesus asking this question. Everyone who has experienced his love at the cross, do you love me? If your answer is yes, Lord, you know that I love you. His command this morning is tend my sheep. We're going to sing a beautiful hymn right now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. May this be our declaration this morning. It's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And I told my family when the, when the day comes that the Lord takes me home, I want to live, my body must live with this song being sung. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Can I ask the congregation to stand, please? And if you don't mean it, please don't sing it. Just hear. Because the Lord knows it. The Lord knows your heart. But let us sing this beautiful song. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine.